Jennifer started out like many of us with an idea of what it takes to be successful and what it takes to to gain and earn money and wealth. And uh, through different circumstances, as you kind of heard through that video, things changed in her life. And uh, she began to change her view, or God really changed her view of what money was. It wasn't her master anymore. Instead, it was a tool that God had given her uh, to bless other people. And I love that when the lady asked her, why would you do this? Her simple answer was, because I can. Not because I have to, not because I want to, simply because I can. Because God has blessed me with enough, and I have managed it enough that I can bless you through what God has given me. You see, we talked last week about this idea of a better view of money. We're going to kind of put the practicality to it this week of how to build and grow wealth God's way. And and we're going to do this through the book of Proverbs. And we talked last week about this fact that everybody lives within one of two realities. We either live as money is our master, or... We live that God is our master, and money is simply a tool that God uses and gives us to bless others and to build his kingdom. And so we cannot live in both those two realities. We live with one or the other. That's what Jesus tells us in the New Testament. And so like I said last week, all of us know which one of those is supposed to be right. All of us know this is the one we're supposed to to ascribe to. We're supposed to not let money be our master. We're supposed to let God be our master and realize that money is a tool. And so it's easy for us to sit here and say we know that. Right? As we go through the, the book of Proverbs this morning, and specifically these passages, you're, you're not going to be blown away. I'm not going to give you some uh, amazing investment strategy that when you walk out of here, you're going to become a multimillionaire. Right? It's not going to happen. But what you're going to have is knowledge of this is how God says to build your wealth, right? to build your finances. And so the question isn't so much do we know it, because like I said, nothing is going to be earth shattering. I don't think so today. Maybe it'll be for some of you. You never thought about it that way. But it's not so much the question of do we know it as much as are we living this, right? So do we know it? Are we believing it? Do we live this out? Because all the wisdom that we gain from the book of Proverbs really does no good if we don't put it into practice. And so the question is, are we willing to live out the the wisdom that God gives us? Are we willing to live out uh, the way that God tells us to build wealth, right? Um, And so when we start to do that is when we'll start to build wealth God's way. And so I want you to turn with the book of Proverbs. We're going to read verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 2 through 5. And we'll come back and we'll hit a couple of these verses a little later. But there's just a ton of Proverbs uh, that we're going to look at. And hopefully uh, you got one of the bulletins and you're just going to, uh, we're going to fly through a bunch of Proverbs. You won't have time to write them all down or, or look them all up. But maybe you'll have time to jot them down. Um, or maybe there'll be some other ideas that you can jot down or maybe a question that you're like, hey, I, I want some more information about that. And I'd love to share that with you. But Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2 through 5 reads like this. It says, verse 2, ill-gotten gains... Do not profit anyone, but righteousness rescues from death. Verse 3, the Lord will not let the righteous go hungry, but he denies the wicked what they crave. Idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. The son who gathers during summer is prudent. The son who sleeps during harvest is disgraceful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this opportunity that we have. God, we thank you um, for a Savior that we have that we can come and worship. God, that we are so blessed, not just with finances, not just in this life, but in the life to come, God, that, that we have a Savior who stepped out of heaven and came to rescue us. God, we had a, a God and a Savior who was so gracious towards us that He didn't expect us or, or, or didn't think that we could earn and so he just gave freely. 
And so, God, I pray this morning that we have the same value of money and finances that you have of us. God, that you have just blessed us in ways that we don't even imagine. God, that you have blessed us beyond our wildest imaginations and expectations. And God, I pray this morning that you really open our eyes to all the blessings that you have given us. Even when it doesn't seem like there's enough, God, I pray that we see these verses and we hold on to the fact that there is plenty in our storehouse because of what you have given to us. God, this morning I pray that you challenge us. God, I pray that we're challenged not just to know your word and your wisdom. God, I pray that we are challenged, honestly, to have some hard conversations with families, God, that we will live out the wisdom that you give us. God, I pray that we build wealth your way. God, I pray that we are students of your word, that we will sit at your feet this morning. And God, when we leave here, we don't just leave here with head knowledge, but God, we leave here with a passion, maybe to change some of the practices in our life. God, so that we can do for others what Jennifer did. God, that we can do just because we can because of what you've done for us, Father. And God, we thank you for what you've done, and I pray that we see that as a tool that we can use, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jack Whitaker Jr. was born and raised in the middle of cold country, West Virginia, in this nice little place called Jumping Creek, West Virginia, which literally got its name because when the explorers were going through, they had to literally jump the creek to get to the other side. That's how they name things in West Virginia. If you don't know anything about West Virginia, they're very simple. They like to just, this is what it is, right? So just to kind of give you an idea, uh, Jack's family uh, lived well below the poverty line like most families in that area. In fact, the county that he grew up in was the fifth poorest county in all of West Virginia, all right? Now, if I say it's the fifth poorest county in North Carolina, that's here. If I say it's the fifth poorest county in West Virginia, that's a whole different level, okay? So he grew up and he lived in this poor, the fifth poorest county in West Virginia, but Jack had two things going for him. He had a knack for construction, and he was able to do things and build things with his hands. And number two, he really did have a strong work ethic. That There was nothing that he wasn't able to, or willing to do if it came together, if it, there was an opportunity. So these two things really worked together to his favor, and he was able to, to work his way out of poverty. And eventually he moved from Jumping Creek to Hurricane, West Virginia, and he started his own construction company. And uh, his construction company really took off because of his work ethic, because of his abilities, and uh, in fact, it took off so well that he was able to start two other businesses while he was there in Hurricane, West Virginia. And by the time Jack reached the age of 55, he owned three different companies. And these three companies together were doing $15 million worth of contracts a year, right? So think about that. He went from below poverty to $15 million in contracts a year. And get this, even himself, so that's just his companies were doing $15 million in contracts a year. Himself, in the time, by the time he was 55, he had a net worth of $55 million per, or excuse me, I'm sorry, not 55, but $17 million personally, right? That was what he had, right? So his companies were doing great. Everything was working well for them. He had a net worth of uh, personally of $17 million at the age of 55. Man, he could have just coasted into retirement. Just think about it. He had it made, right? He had everything he thought he could have had and needed at the age of 55. He could have just coasted. And he was kind of looking forward to that day where he could just get to retirement and him and his wife were going to travel and his daughter was going to retire and take care of his granddaughter. And, and so he was just going to kind of thought he could just coast into that. 
But on Christmas Eve of 2002, Jack stopped by the usual gas station that he did every single morning. He filled up his truck. He bought a biscuit there like he always did. But something was different this morning. You see, this morning, as he was sitting there talking to the clerk at the gas station, she had mentioned something about the Powerball jackpot and how massive the Powerball jackpot was. At this time, it was this massive amount. She just talked about what she could do with all that money. And so it got Jack thinking just a little bit what he could do with all that money as well. And so Jack said, meh, what the heck? And so he paid $100 to buy Powerball tickets, right? So he bought $100 worth of Powerball lottery tickets and uh, picked his numbers, turned those things in, and Jack was able to pick the right numbers. And he became, at that time, the largest single winner in lottery history with a jackpot of $314 million. $314 million. Now, Jack was thinking he was getting a little over the hill and didn't really want to wait for um, $314 million. Because I don't know if you know this about the jackpot and the lottery and the way this works. I just heard the story. Um, but if you win $314 million, that means they're going to pay you a little bit of that each year for like the next 20 or 30 years. Well, Jack said, I don't want to wait that long. And so I'll just take one lump sum. Right? When you do that, it automatically takes some of your winnings away. So Jack decided he would just take one lump sum and he would just get all of his money right now. And so even after taking the lump sum discount and taxes, Jack still took home $113 million. Right? So here's a man who had $17 million that he'd worked for, he earned and did all that. And now he's got $113 extra million dollars because he won the lottery. And I would love to tell you that, that Jack rode off in the sunset and Jack retired and everything went great for Jack. But it didn't happen that way. You see, right after Jack won the lottery, his newfound wealth kind of attracted all of these other people to him. In fact, people that maybe didn't have the best interest in mind. And it started attracting the wrong crowd for him and really started causing all kinds of, of trouble for him. You see, right after he did uh, won the lottery, he, he did some good things. He gave some money to a bunch of different churches. He started a foundation. He even bought the clerk that sold him the ticket, a new house, a new car, and gave him $50,000 in cash. But that's where the good news ends. Because it wasn't but a year after he won this lottery that his granddaughter's boyfriend overdosed from drugs in one of Jack's houses. And notice I said in one of Jack's houses. I mean, he had several at this point. So here is this young man who died from a drug overdose in Jack's house. So Jack is now a part of a lawsuit from this young man's father blaming Jack for this overdose of his son. And so it started causing problems there. Jack had lots of uh, large sums of cash stolen on several different occasions. His granddaughter, which he loved and spoiled in so many ways, she was found murdered, um, and that murder was never solved. His wife divorced him, and when she divorced him, she caused the companies that he actually worked for and uh, created and built up this massive wealth with, he called, she caused them so much problem that they almost had to shut down. Um, he was sued by the casinos in Atlantic City for bouncing checks. He was arrested for DUI. And in 2007, remember he won in 2002. In 2007, so five years after winning $113 million, he went on the news and he made this announcement. I am broke and I have no friends. Because once you loan a friend money, the friendship is over. He went on to say that since I won the lottery, I think there is no control of greed. 
I think that if you have something, there's always someone else who wants it. I wish I'd have torn that ticket up and never cashed it in. You see, Jack learned a hard way that what Proverbs teaches us from the very beginning and makes this clear warning that when it comes to gaining wealth, there is a right way to do it and there is a wrong way to do it. And for the right way to do it was what Jack had done. He had made $17 million the right way, but all of a sudden he came into this windfall of $113 million and he came about it the wrong way and it caused him this huge amount of difficulty and this huge amount of pain. And so when we look at the book of Proverbs, it gives us very clear there are several wrong ways the harmful ways to grow wealth and to build wealth and to gain wealth. And so I want you to look with me in Proverbs chapter 21. We're going to spend a little bit of time right there. So if you were in chapter 11 or 10, just flip over real quick to Proverbs 21. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7 because in each one of these verses deals with a wrong way to gain wealth, right? So starting in verse 5, Solomon writes this. He says, the plans of a diligent or, or uh, excuse me, the plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit. But anyone who is reckless certainly becomes poor. The word reckless there is often translated as hasty or someone's in a hurry to do some, something. And so in this case, they're in a hurry to gain profit. They're in a hurry to gain money or to gain wealth. And so these are people who honestly think that the lottery is their ticket. That They, they, they honestly think that if they just win the lottery, everything's going to happen for them. Everything's going to fall in place. These are folks that are hasty to get rich and so they will spend their last three dollars or four dollars buying a lottery ticket because the lottery is the answer to everything and if I just get that lottery and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have it all and so their haste is to get rich quick you see that's the thing these are folks that buy into the get rich quick schemes that, that they, there's this huge investment with no risk involved or very little risk and these are people who they get the emails that say hey if you click on this email and you follow this link and you just send us just a little bit of money man you're gonna explode you're going to have a tremendous amount of wealth. These are folks that respond when the Nigerian prince called them and said, Hey, I've got millions of dollars to send you if you just send me a couple thousand. Or if you'll just give me your bank account information so I can funnel this millions of dollars into you, then we'll be good to go. And that's all we need to get this started. And these are folks that will invest and they'll jump in an investment without knowing any details of the investment. You see, all they see is reward and no risk. Why? Because they're reckless and because they're hasty to get rich. Now, all of us sitting in here, we're all way too smart to fall for any of these schemes, right? Nobody gives in to the Nigerian prince, except last year, $700,000 were lost to the Nigerian prince by himself. I still don't know who that guy is, but he came up with $700,000 of other people's money just by sending them emails or facts or whatever it is. And if you think that's a lot, um, I, want you to give, I want to give you this number. That in 2019, Americans lost $126 million to investment fraud, okay, investment schemes. Did you hear that? $126 million to investment fraud or investment schemes. These get-rich-quick schemes. Not just the Nigerian Prince one, but all these, hey, get-rich-quick, there's no problem, don't worry about a thing, just send us some money, and we're going to make you instantly rich. America lost more in one year than this guy lost in five years. Okay, the, He won the biggest jackpot ever and took home $113 million, and that doesn't compare to the 126 that people lost trying to get rich quick. You see, there's this concern, there's this worry that people are so worried about getting rich quick that we forget that when you try to get rich quick, there are huge problems, there are huge issues that you're going to have. So why do people fall for this? 
The answer is given to us in Proverbs 28, verse 22, and he's very blunt and he's very truthful about this. In 28, 22, he says, A greedy man is in a hurry for wealth. He doesn't know that poverty will come to him. Did you hear that first part? A greedy man. Why do people go for get-rich-quick schemes? Why do they go for the Nigerian prince? It's simply because we are greedy people. Because we want more, and we don't want to wait for more. We want it. We want it now. Let's be honest. We live in a get-it-and-get-it-now society. So why would you wait for wealth? Why would you wait for investments? Why would you wait for employment? Just get it now. And it's right there in front of you. So just do it. Why? Because the truth is we are greedy people. We see it, we want it, and we got to have it right now. So I want you to notice that this hasty wealth is going to bring you something, but it's not going to bring you wealth like it promised. In fact, if you look at both uh, chapter 21, verse 5, and 28, 22, you have the same end result. In verse 21, 5, it says, anyone who is reckless certainly becomes poor. In 28, verse 22, he says, he doesn't know the one who is greedy doesn't know that poverty will come to him. Poverty is what follows hasty wealth. Poverty is what uh, follows a greedy heart. Poverty is always what comes after those that seek wealth the wrong way in this hasty manner. You're never going to get rich quick. You're never going to uh, get this huge investment that's going to show up and all of a sudden it's going to be great. And if you think it's going to be that way, always remember the story of Jack Whitaker and the fact that he had all that he ever needed and yet he ended his life. And with empty pockets and an empty life. I want you to how, imagine how depressing it must feel to be on the top of the world and have everything you could ever dream of and all these people around you that love you. And yet five years after everything has dream come true, you've got to get on the news and make an announcement. I have nothing. And I don't even have any friends. Because when you loan a friend money, the friendship is over. Hasty wealth leads to broken pocketbooks and broken hearts. If we turn back to chapter 21 with me, the very next verse, verse 6, it warns us about another way, a wrong way of gaining wealth, and this is through deceit. And Paul, Solomon writes of this in verse 6. He says, making a fortune through a lying tongue is a vanishing mist, a pursuit of death. He goes on to say the same thing in chapter 13, verse 11, when he says, wealth attained by fraud will dwindle, right? So get this. This is not um, the victims of the get-rich-quick schemes. These are the perpetrators of the get-rich-quick schemes, right? So these are, this verse or these verses are aimed at the ones who, who deceive people, who fraud people, who, who uh, put these schemes on and says, listen, you're going to get wealthy, but when you do, just realize that that wealth is going to be here today and gone tomorrow. It's a vanishing mist. It's the pursuit of death. And whatever wealth you gain, it's going to be gone in a flash, if you need an example of that, some of you remember this guy named Bernie Madoff who came up with the, the billions of dollars worth of the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. And he had billions and billions. And what happened to him just this year or last year? No, sorry, just a couple years ago, he died in jail. All those billions of dollars couldn't help him out. All of it was a vanishing mist. Bernie Indoff dying in prison. Sorry, it was early this year. Deceiving, fraud, lying. It will never gain wealth. It will always come back to you and cause you more trouble. In chapter 15, verse 27, it says that not only will it cause you trouble, but it cause trouble for your household as well. Your family will have to suffer because you were dishonest in what you got and how you got those things. There's one final wrong way of gaining wealth, and it's through violence or robbery. Solomon addresses this in chapter 21, 
verse 7, when he says this, The violence of the wicked sweeps them away because they refuse to act justly. The language here describes uh, something being taken that doesn't belong to you, right? That is robbery. If you take something that doesn't belong to you, it's, it's, that's robbery. And it describes it as a violent thing, right? Now, it doesn't mean it's an armed robbery. It doesn't mean you beat somebody up and you steal something from them. It, it's not necessarily the acts that go around the robbery. It is the robbery itself that is violent, right? You have violated justice when you take something that doesn't belong to you. So that in itself is a violent act, right? So what it really means is that you devalue a person by taking something that doesn't belong to you. When you take something that doesn't belong to you, it's looking at that person and saying, hey, you are less than a person than I am, and I deserve more than you do, so I'm just going to take what you've got. That's a violent act, right? Whether you physically are violent, or you're just emotionally violent, or you're just spiritually violent, it's devaluing someone who has the same image of God that you have and putting them down while lifting yourself up. And so if we're not careful, we find ourselves doing this when we borrow something and don't return it. We find ourselves doing this when we take something that doesn't belong to us. And in chapter 10, verse 2, it says, Ill-gotten gains do not profit anyone. See, you're never going to gain wealth by stealing it or taking it from someone else. Instead, instead, you're going to be swept away like the dust and the dirt. Like you treated someone else like dust and dirt. So what's going to happen to you? You're going to be swept away by the same violence and same schemes that you came up with. So you're never going to gain wealth in a hasty means. You're never going to gain wealth through deception or lies. You're never going to gain wealth through robbery or stealing it from someone else. So how do we gain wealth? Unfortunately, the book of Proverbs gives us that answer as well. And the truth is, there's really no secret to it. All right? I told you I'm not going to give you a million-dollar investment strategy. What I am going to tell you is simply what the Bible tells you, that if you want to gain wealth, go to work. Right? That's, all the, that's all I got, right? because that's what the Bible says. Right? That if you're willing to put in the time and you're willing to work for it, then Solomon gives this very clear answer of how to gain wealth. And he does it in several different Proverbs. So just jot these down real quick. In chapter 10, we read it in verse 4. It says, Idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. Right? So let me pause right there for just a moment. I want you to notice something. God is not against riches. God is not against wealth. God does not look at someone who gained wealth the right way and says, oh, no, that's bad. What he looks at is people who gain wealth the wrong way and says, no, that's wrong. You shouldn't do it that way. Okay? He looks at folks who are wealthy and mismanage their money or are wealthy and use their money in a non-useful way. That's a problem. But notice right here, idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands, hands that work, they bring riches. And God doesn't say that's a bad thing. So God is not against rich people. Okay? The book of Proverbs does not condemn being rich. It condemns hoarding. It condemns um, not being um, gracious with your riches. But it doesn't condemn riches itself. And he puts it in chapter 12, verse 27. I love the way he puts it in this verse. He says, A lazy man doesn't roast his game, but a diligent man, his wealth is precious. I love, another way to translate that is that a lazy hunter will have nothing to roast. Okay? I don't know if you know any lazy hunters or not. I'm going to be completely honest and transparent with you. I am a lazy hunter. Okay? All right. When it came to deer hunting, my brother was the one. Me and my brother would get up. We'd go out super early in the morning, and I would go sit out there, and I would freeze my rear end off, and I'd go back in the truck, and I'd sit in the truck. And then hours and hours and hours later, my brother would come out of the woods, and he was like, you're never going to kill a deer sitting in the truck. And I said, no, but I'm going to be warm. And you sat out there, and you were cold. 
So which one of us is the smarter two? Because guess what? You didn't kill anything either. But guess what? Neither one of us had anything to roast, right? I am a lazy hunter. If it comes by easy, if I can, if I can just reach out and go to the supermarket, I'm going to do that, okay? Um, but if you are not willing to put in the work, then you're not going to get the rewards of it. And the other thing this verse tells us is that we really start to appreciate something when you have to work for it. Right? I'll be, again, total, total transparency. I don't necessarily appreciate all the work that goes into making a steak or all the work that goes into making hamburgers and stuff like that. Why? Because I just went to the store and bought it. But if I had to butcher the cow, if I had to kill and raise the cow and butcher the cow and then slaughter the cow, if I had to do all that stuff, I bet I would appreciate that hamburger a whole lot more. I bet it would taste a whole lot better if I had to do all that work myself. What this verse tells us is when you have to work for something, you start to appreciate it a whole lot more. All right, so parents, listen to this sound advice. Do not pay for everything in your kid's college, all right? Don't do it. Why? Because they haven't worked for it, and they don't see any incentive in it, right? There's nothing they've worked towards. They don't value that, right? You may buy your kid a first car, but surely don't buy them a second car, even if they wrecked the first one. Why? Because they didn't appreciate what you gave to them. They didn't value it enough to see it and take care of it. Right? So make them work for things in their life. Right? It, it, trust me, it won't kill them if they have a job. All right? it, it didn't kill you. I'm guessing it didn't kill your parents. It didn't kill me. It hasn't killed anybody yet that I know of to have a job when you're a teenager. Make them work because you build a great work ethic into them and you show them that when you work for something, you appreciate it. Right? It gives the same idea in chapter 14, verse 23 and 24. I've got to move on, otherwise I'm going to get all excited there. But in verse 23, he says, There is profit in all hard work, but endless talk leads only to poverty. You want to gain wealth? Go to work. You want to be poor? Sit around and talk. Right? It's very simple. In verse 24, he says, The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the foolishness of fools produces foolishness. I love that. The foolishness of fools just gives you more foolishness. And so remember that we've talked about this idea of wisdom since we've been in the book of Proverbs. And wisdom is not just book smart. Wisdom is not just intelligence. Wisdom is being skillful and using those skills in a, in a smart way, in a wise way. So whether you're skilled in building, then go build. If you're skilled in, in analyzing systems and engineering stuff, go do that. If you're skilled in teaching, you're not going to have wealth, but still go do that, okay? If you are skilled in anything, go do that. It's what he's telling you. That's their wisdom. Go do those things. You know what your other option is? To sit around and talk. And you know what that produces? Foolishness. That's the foolishness that fools produce is they just sit around and talk and they don't do anything, a.k.a. Washington, D.C., right? That's, they just sit around and talk, and they don't get anything done, right? So whatever you're skilled in, go do that. Otherwise, you're just producing foolishness. And so you can either sit around and talk about how you don't have money, or you can go out and make money. You can either sit around and talk about how you need more money to do this, that, and that, or you can go out and you can make money doing this. You can sit around and talk about not having a job, or you can ride down 70 and see 15,000 signs that say, we'll hire, working now, bonus, sign on right now. You've got a choice, but guess what? You're not going to get that bonus if you just sit at home and talk about having nothing. The answer to growing wealth and building wealth is work for it. It's the prescription that God gives us to gain wealth. And there is no other choice. There is no scheme around it. The choice is simple. If you want wealth to gain wealth, then go work for it. 
find the way to make it happen. And once you've gained wealth, the very next step in, in God's plan is to guard your wealth, maintain what you have. But I want you to listen to me. This word wealth, we kind of, uh, it's deceptive because for some of us, we think we don't have wealth. And the truth is there's not a person sitting in this room that doesn't have wealth. All right. Any of you sitting in this room, any of you watching online, one, if you're watching online, you're on a phone or a computer, you've got more wealth than 95% of the world. Right? If you've got more than $2 to your name right now, you are richer than 90% of the world. You have wealth. And so I want you to understand the objective to maintain wealth is the same if you have $2 or $2 million. Right? You have to maintain what you have. You have to guard what you have. And so I want to be careful because the principles that we're going to talk about guarding your wealth laid out in Proverbs, they're the exact same no matter amount of money that you have. If it's $2 or $2 million, these principles are the same. And so the very first thing we have to do when we guard our wealth is we have to establish a budget. Right? Now, I'm going to be completely honest, and most of you have been reading through the book of Proverbs. You've done our Proverbs challenge where you started uh, the first day of the month. You read chapter one, second day of the month, chapter two. You read all the way through, and you're trying to go through your mind right now, and you're like, I don't remember anything about a budget in there. And I'm being completely honest with you. If you look through the whole book of Proverbs, it does not mention the word budget at all. Okay, That is an English word that we came up with. But I want to show you that the, uh, the idea of a budget is very clear. This principle of accounting and maintaining what you have is there in several different passages. And one of the big one is chapter 27 verses 23 through 26. All right? So if you're in your Bible and you're flipping through, go ahead and flip to chapter 27 verse 23 through 26. Because what we see as wealth... These folks are going to see in a different light. What we see as money and bank accounts and IRAs, these folks are going to talk about the same thing. They're just going to talk about it in a different light. So chapter 27 in verse 23 gives us a budget idea. It just does it in agricultural terms. All right? So in verse 23, he says, Know well the condition of your flock and pay attention to your herd. Know well. Take account of your flock and your herd. Now for you and me, we have bank accounts. We have IRAs. We have retirements. We have checking accounts. We have all of that stuff. But if you're a shepherd, you know where your wealth is? It's on the sheep that are on the middle of the hillside. All right? That's your currency. That's your money. So even though he's not talking nickels and dimes like we would, he's talking currency just like they would in those days, right? So the shepherds and the flocks, this is their money. So take account of what you have. Know what you have. And that's the first part of making a budget, all right? So get this. If you're taking notes, the first part of making a budget is you need to know what you have, right? So what he's telling is the shepherds, take account maintain what you have. What is it that you have? That's the first step. Because if you don't know what you have, then verse 24 kicks in. For wealth is not forever, and not even a crown lasts for all times. If you don't know what you have, and you don't guard it and maintain it, then it will not last. You'll find yourself with nothing. So the first part of making a budget is simply that. What do I have? All right? Take account of what your flocks or your, your financial situation is. The second part is found in verse 25. Verse 25 says, When hay is removed and new growth appears, the growth from the hills is gathered in. Right? So for the shepherds and the farmers, notice they're taking something in. This is their income. Right? So I want you to see this is the second part of figuring out a budget is what is coming in. So I know what I've got. And now I've taken account, I know what's coming in. I know what my financial, instant, or my financial outlook should look like because this is the amount that's coming in. Right? This is what I'm bringing into my household. This is my income. So we started off with knowing what you have, and now we know what we're bringing in. The last part is, where's my stuff 
going? All right, so the three parts of budget. What do you have? What are you bringing in? And where is it going? All right, look with me in verse 26. Lambs will provide your clothing, and goats the price of a field. So remember the lambs, the goats, they're part of the flock that we talked about just a moment ago. And so they're going to be used for something. In this case, they're going to be trading the lamb's wool for clothing. They're going to be trading the goats for the price of land. These are your expenses. What does it cost to maintain this flock? Right? Well, if you're going to maintain a flock and you're going to be out there in the middle of wintertime, you're going to want a coat. Right? So that's an expense. Where are you going to get that from? You're going to get it from the wool of the lambs. Right? So this is your expenses. Right? If you have a flock, you're going to have to maintain that flock. You're going to have to have food for them. You're going to have to have land for them. And so that's an expense. So where are you going to get that from? You're going to have to trade your goats, your goat's milk for that property, all right? So you're now expending, you're, you're sending stuff out, right? These are your expenses. So when you come to a budget, notice that, like, again, it didn't say the word budget, but I want you to see the principles here very clearly. It starts with this. What do I have? What's coming in? And what's going out? What are my expenses? And all of this will really start to open your eyes when you start to guard your wealth. And failing to do any one of these will really get you in trouble. You see, when a couple starts fighting a lot, and they come to me, and they tell me they're having all these difficulties, and, and we start talking through some of their issues. And, and, and normally, one of the biggest subjects that couples fight about, actually, it's the, the leading cause of divorce, money, Okay. And so when we start to talk about these things and we start to kind of work through what is the issue, why are you fighting all the time, and we start to get to these points, and I'm like, all right, let's talk about your budget. Let me see your, your family budget where you guys have sat down and you've talked about what your income is and what your expenses are. You know what I get 95% of the time in that moment? Oh, we don't have a budget. You know the other response I get? We don't have enough money for a budget. You know what my response back to that is? The reason you don't have enough money for a budget is because you don't have a budget to the money that you have, okay? You will never have enough money for a budget if you don't budget for the money that you do have. And if you need a New Testament principle for that, think about the fact that when Jesus was telling the parable and he, he, he gave this one, this many talents, and that many that talents, and that many, it wasn't the amount of talents that made the difference, it's what did they do with those talents, what they do with that amount of money? And so whether you have the most amount of talents and money or the least amount, that didn't make a difference is what did you do with it? So listen to me very clearly. You're never going to have enough money for a budget if you don't budget for the money that you have. Right? So do these three things. What do I have? What's coming in? What's going out? And I can almost guarantee you that if you as a couple will sit down with that, one, you're going to fight, okay, over that budget because you're going to view things very differently at that moment. But I can almost guarantee you that if you will sit down and go through that process together, you will find yourself fighting about money a whole lot less, okay, as long as both of you agree to be disciplined and self-controlled and stick to the budget that you just established, okay? You can't establish a budget and then throw it out the window, right? That's having knowledge but not living it out. That, that doesn't work, right? In fact, we see through the book of Proverbs that a budget takes discipline and it takes self-control. Chuck Bentley put it this way, and Chuck Bentley is a great financial uh, counselor, and he says this, a budget is a spending plan that helps us spend money wisely. We know that everything we have is a gift from God, and a budget simply helps us to be faithful. A budget eliminates the fears and anxieties and worries of if bills can be paid, and it brings peace and breaks the bonds of slavery to money 
into debt. Listen, you're never going to get to the point where money is not your master and money is just a tool if you don't start with a budget. And it takes discipline and it takes self-control, but it's worth it because it will bring you peace and freedom from your your situations. In fact, I want you to see how it takes discipline and self-control. In chapter 13, verse 18, Solomon says this, Poverty and disgrace come to those who ignore discipline. Did you get that? Poverty and disgrace come to those who are not discipline. Come to the ones who don't take account of what they have, don't look at their income, and don't look at their expenses. But the one who accepts correction will be honored, right? Is it nice when I have to look at a family and say, let me see your budget? Like, we don't have one. I'm like, well, that's your problem. It's not an easy conversation. But wisdom and correction will be honored. So if you don't have a budget, then seek the correction of God's Word. In chapter 21, verse 17, it says, the one who loves pleasure will become a poor man. Whoever loves wine and oil will not get rich. You see, one who loves pleasure is one that doesn't account for their expenses. They just spend. You know, they may have a huge flock. They may have a huge uh, assets. They may have a huge income, but they love pleasure more than they love anything else. And so they just spend. And they just spend, and they spend, and they spend. And they have no self-control, whether it's guns or dresses or, or necklaces or whatever it is that you spend money on. It's simply you love that, and you're not willing to hold on to anything else. And so you outspend your budget. So listen, living on a budget takes discipline. It takes self-control. And so there are many folks that have found one of the things that's useful is called the envelope system, where you set your budget, and then you take a certain amount of cash, and you put it in this envelope. You put a certain amount of cash in this envelope, and you put a certain amount. And so this one's labeled for groceries, and this one's labeled for gas money, and this one's labeled for entertainment, and you spend that cash out of those envelopes. And when the entertainment cash is gone for the month, that means your entertainment is done for the month, okay? Some people find that useful. It is a tool that you can use, and if you want to find out about that, there's several places you can do that. If you need help making a budget, then let me encourage you this. Let me, you may want to drop this down. Crown.org, C-R-O-W-N.org. You can just simply go to that website, search spending plans and budget plans, um, and there's a ton of information there. Or email me, and I'll send you information that I work through families with, and I work through um, newlyweds and stuff like that with. Right. So that's the first thing is we got to look at a budget, and then one of the things our budget should always include is investing and saving. Right. So if you're building a budget that doesn't include investing and savings then you're going to find that your budget is useless, okay? Let me show you what I mean. There's three verses that really deal with this idea of investing in saving. The first one is chapter 13, verse 11. It says, wealth obtained by fraud will dwindle, right? We've already talked about that. But whoever earns it through labor will multiply it, right? And this phrase of earning it through labor is really a, whoever gathers in his hand, right? I don't know if you've ever seen a kid who spilled something, right? And, and then they, get, they have like a cup or a bowl or something, and they bend over to pick whatever it is they spilled, and they put it in the bowl, and they walk over here to pick up the other one, and they pick it up, and when they pick that one up, the first one falls out, right? You guys ever seen kids do that? Or maybe you had something in your hand, and you went to go grab something else, but to grab something else, you had to let go of the first thing. Okay, so the image he's using here is, remember, we don't do it hastily. So you don't have money in your hand and you let go of that money to grab more money. Right. Instead, what he gives here is this image that you hold on to what you have and then you just use a couple fingers to pull in a little bit more. 
and a couple fingers to pull in a little bit more. So you're still holding what you have. And each time you reach out just a little bit, you gain a little bit more, right? This is interest. This is investing, all right? Again, I'm not a financial person. This is just God's Word, right? So you don't spill the beans to pick up the other beans. You don't throw this down to grab something. Instead, what do you do? You get a little and a little and a little each time. So eventually your hand becomes completely full. That's not hasty, right? That's not rash, right? That's how you gain wealth. That's how you invest. It's just a little bit, a little bit, and a little bit, a little more, and a little more, and a little more, and your savings, your investment grows, right? I love this one in chapter 13, verse 22, just a few verses later. He says, a good man leaves an inheritance for their grandkids, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. You know, most parents will tell you the thing they want most for their kid is they want their kids to be better off than they had it, right? That was what my parents always said, that we want you to have a better life and, and you to grow up better than we did. Most parents want that, right? And so to do that, we have to start growing generational wealth. We have to start making choices that are not just about you, but about future generations. Now, again, you don't give an 18-year-old millions of dollars because they're 18 and now they have it, Okay. Instead, you discipline them wisely and you show them this is where this money came from. And by the way, you may have a million dollars, but you still go to work every day. Okay? That's how you gain more. Right? So you make choices. You build this generational wisdom. And I love this last one. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 25, he gives this great example of an ant. In chapter 35, verse 20, it says, Ants are not a strong people, but they store up their food in the summer. Right? Why do they store up their food in the summer? Because an ant, even though he's not strong, is smart enough to know that summer doesn't last forever. Right? An ant is smart enough to know there's going to be a time when all this abundance of food, when everything is out there, is not going to be out there anymore. So what does he do? He grabs it, he takes it to his house, and he invests it. He stores it up. Why? Because there's coming a day when it's going to be raining he can't go out. There's coming a day when it's going to be snow on the ground and there's not going to be anything. There's coming a day when there's not going to be green leaves everywhere. So what's he going to eat in those days? What he has stored up up. All right. So the idea is simple, that you need to realize that your invest, what you have as an income now may not always be your income. So what do you need to do? You need to hold on to some of it. Make sure that when you're making your budget, that your income and your expenses are not the exact same. You need some income that is a little above your expenses because you need to hold on to some for a rainy day. There's a day that's coming that's going to be raining. There's a day that's coming when the cold, hard truth is going to set in that something is not right. right? There's this unpredictable situation that's going to show up. And if you've ever lived long enough, you know that things break. Things tear up. Things don't last forever. And so if you don't have savings, then what do you have to do? You have to go into debt. And so financial experts, and again, that's not me. I'm just telling you what other people say and matching it with the Bible, right? Financial experts will tell you one of the first financial goals you need to do is save $1,000 emergency fund, right? Now, the emergency fund is for emergencies. It is not for, hey, I want to go buy McDonald's today, and I've got this extra $1,000, okay? That's not an emergency fund. Emergency fund is your dishwasher broke, or your, your washing machine broke, or your car needs a new part for it, right? Something that's totally unexpected, you've got this money, because if you don't have this money, guess what you're doing? you're going into debt, which is never a way to build wealth. In fact, several times Proverbs tells us to avoid debt. If you're going to build wealth, gain wealth, the way you do it is avoid debt, especially foolish debt. Um, and we've talked about this before. We've talked about uh, this foolish debt of taking on other people's debt and putting up securities or co-signing for a loan for somebody else. Right? Uh, most people will go into debt because they're trying to keep up with someone else. 
Okay? One of the greatest things, we go in debt to impress people that we don't really like in the first place. Okay? So think about that. We go in debt to impress people that people we don't really like or care about in the first place. Okay? So a couple things about personal debt that stick out to me in Proverbs is in chapter 22. The first one is verse 7. It says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. You see, nothing will make your money your master faster than having to make debt payments. All right? Now, don't get me wrong. Debt is essential at times. Okay? We live in a society, unless you are born wealthy, unless you have massive generational wealth, you're going to have to have a house. And most of us cannot flop that money just out of our pocket when we're 25 years old. Okay? So some debt is essential, but you need to get out of it as quick as you can right? because it will make you a slave to the lender. It will be your master. And again, in chapter 22, verse 26 and 27, simply gives this warning. Don't be one of those who enters agreements, who puts up security for loans. In verse 27, if you have no money to pay, even your bed will be taken from under you. My grandmother grew up during the Great Depression, and she would always tell us this simple line. If you don't have the money to pay for it, you don't need it. Okay? And all the time, that was her motto in life. Now, she had a credit card. But I don't know any time that she ever used it. Okay? If you don't have the money to pay for it, you don't need it. And I can tell you that through that wisdom, there was never a need that my grandmother had that she could not pay for. Okay? She did what Proverbs tells us. She was smart. She saved. She invested. Uh, and so she needed the money. It was there. Why? Because she didn't spend it if she didn't have it. She avoided debt at all costs. Right? And now there were things she went into debt for, but it was a house and things like that. But her motto was simple this. It matches up with Proverbs. If you, don't, if you can't pay for it, you don't need it. Because there's coming a day when your income may not be the same. And if you don't have the money, then even your bed can be taken away. Right? For some folks, that looks like an eviction notice. For some folks, that looks like a foreclosure notice. For some folks, it looks like your car just got towed away because they got a repo notice. Right? Even what you have can be taken away if you take things that you cannot pay for. Right? So then let me give you the last principle, the last thing about gaining wealth God's way. And it's simply this idea that if you're going to gain wealth God's way, then we see it as a tool that God's going to use. What? To bless others and to build his kingdom. To do that, we have to be generous in our giving. And there's several Proverbs that he uses. Uh, in fact, there's tons of Proverbs, but I'm only going to give you a few of them uh, here in the time we have. In chapter 11, verse 22 and 24, it says, One man gives freely, yet gains more. Another withholds what is right, only to become poor. In verse 25, A gracious person will be enriched, and the one who gives a drink of water will receive Water. I want you to notice what he's telling you here. That a person who gives freely gets in return. The one who withholds, thinking if, all I, if my whole goal is to save and invest, my whole goal is to live the American dream, to get all I can, can all I get, and sit on the can, then realize that you're going to find yourself sitting on an empty can before long. Okay, Because you're going to find yourself that even though you think you got it all together, you became poor. Why? Because money became your master and you didn't view it the way God told you to as a tool to bless others. You don't have that opportunity like the lady in the video, Jennifer, who said, why did you do that? Because I can. Because God told me to. God expects us to use what he gave us to bless other people. And it's not just true of money. It's true of everything that God has given you. What he's given you is to be a blessing to other people. We read on in chapter 19, verse 17. I love this one. Kindness to the poor 
is a loan to the Lord, and he will give a reward to the lender. You see, I love this because what does God owe you? Nothing except one thing. The only thing that God owes you is what you have given away to somebody else. Right? Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says that we are to give to the poor not, or out of pity, uh, not to be seen or applauded, much less to gain influence over them, but out of pure sympathy, or pure sympathy and compassion, we must give to them. Right? We must not extend, or excuse me, we must not expect to get anything back from the poor, not even gratitude. But we must regard that we have done as a loan to the Lord. He undertakes the obligation, and we look to Him in the matter. We must not look to a second party. Get this. What an honor the Lord bestows upon us who He concedes to borrow from us. Did you hear that? What an honor that God would borrow from us. The truth is, he's only borrowing what he already gave us in the first place. And goes, Charles Spurgeon goes on to say, The merchant is greatly favored who has the Lord on his book. We should, it would seem to pity to have such a name with such a small amount in the investment. He said, let us make it a heavy amount. The next time a, meaty man, a needy man comes your way, let's help him out. Because the more you give to him the more God is going to bless you. You remember the story of Jennifer, and we started out with, she said, because she gave, she said that when you give, you don't expect anything in return, but you get so much more back in return. She went on to say, I'm a much better person, a much happier person, and there's just no other way to describe it. You see, the truth is, what God gave us, He gave us to be a blessing to someone else. And the reality is that what you have is not really yours. It belongs to Him in the first place. And we give because He gave it to you in the first place. And the truth is that you cannot outgive Him because He gave it to you in the first place. And if He gave it to you in the first place and you give it away, guess what? He'll give you more in return. Right? So you're not investing in, in poor to get more. You're simply giving because God gave to you. And when you do that, you'll notice that all your needs are supplied. And that is the moment that you see God as your master and money as a tool to bless others and to build His kingdom. This is the way that God describes how we are to build wealth. We're to build it in a, in a, through work. We're to guard it and maintain it. But we're also use it to building His kingdom. You see, building and gaining wealth is not just in this world. We're to gain wealth and investments in the next world as well. And we do that by giving to those who are less fortunate. Let's pray together.